0: The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of extreme
1: violence which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
2: On the evening of March 21st, 2010, in University Place, Washington, a mother named Kathy Powell was in the middle of preparing Sunday dinner when she suddenly got a phone call. The caller ID showed that it was coming from Del Norte County Sheriff's Department in Crescent City, California. Kathy assumed that the call must be about her 21-year-old son, Taylor Powell, who had moved back to his birthplace a few years prior. In his younger years, Taylor had gone through a bit of a rebellious phase and had gotten into trouble once or twice with the law for misdemeanors. However, in the past couple of years, Taylor had been working hard at turning his life around and was making really good choices that were taking him in a positive direction. But the phone call wasn't about Taylor being in trouble. The police officer wasn't calling about something that Taylor did, but rather something someone else had done to him. The details were so horrific that it would take several months before even the Powells would get the full truth of what had happened. Join me now as we take an intimate look into the lives of a family who were in the midst of repairing a wounded relationship. When tragedy suddenly struck, a family whose lives were turned completely upside down after a small get-together between four friends took a shocking and violent turn, leaving an entire community grieving and looking for answers. Before settling in Crescent City, California, Taylor's parents, Kathy and Tim Powell, had met, married, and had their first two children in Spokane, Washington, in the early 80s, just two hours south of the Canadian border. The modestly-sized city of Spokane showcases a beautiful waterfall, which serves as a centerpiece for the 100-acre park found in the heart of the city. Located just west of the Rocky Mountain foothills, and with a river running through its core, Spokane's motto, Near Nature, Near Perfect, makes a lot of sense. But as beautiful and as quaint as the city was for the Powells and the other locals who resided there at the time, jobs had become scarce. The Powells married young and were doing their best to provide for their two children, but found themselves struggling to make ends meet. It was then that Tim Powell's father, living in Bishop, California, offered for them to come and stay with him for a six-week stint. Tim's father, who was a pastor, also did metalwork on the side to supplement his income. He suggested Tim work for him for a bit to get through their dry spell. But after spending six weeks with Tim's father, the appeal of raising their children closer to family had them convinced they needed to make a move from Spokane to Crescent City, California, where Tim's brother lived. Tim's wife, Kathy, recalls the first time driving there.
3: So when we arrived in Crescent City, it was nighttime. And so we were following his brother to their house. And I couldn't really tell where we were at because it was dark. It was actually New Year's Eve we got there. So in the morning of New Year's Day, I decided that I wanted to go see what the town was like. And so Crescent City is on the Northern California coast. It's the real Northern California because it's right up against the Oregon border. So when I drove into Crescent City, I was driving down Highway 101, which starts up north and goes down like along the Oregon coast and the California coast and all down that way. And then it's got the redwoods. So we've got the Pacific Ocean on the west side. We've got the redwoods on the east side. And scenery-wise, it's beautiful. So beautiful. The waters are clear. The trees are beautiful. But when I drove into that town, it's a small town. I think at the time that we moved there, they had about 8,000 people in the whole county. And I literally drove past it and not realized it. And so then I had to turn back around and figure out where I was at. And then I went down Third Street. I think at that time there was one stoplight. There was maybe two or three grocery stores. So, I mean, we had health care and all that. But if you needed to see specialists, you always had to go out of town to go do that. We had a Ben Franklin store, which I'd never been into before. And I enjoyed that. And we used to order from JCPenney Catalog. They had a small clothing store there, and it was a dying town because it used to be a fishing and lumber town. But all the lumber mills, I think there was still one going when we moved there, and then all the lumber mills shut down. And then eventually the fishing went away. They still do crabbing, but even that, I think there's so many limits now on what you can do with regards to commercial fishing. So the town was dying when we moved there.
2: Although there wasn't a lot going on in Crescent City when the Powells first relocated, it didn't take long for the city to drastically transform once the Pelican Bay State Prison was established there. The only Supermax State Prison in California is said to house the worst of the worst male prisoners, with 40% of the inmates serving life sentences. Nearly all of the prisoners located there Have been transferred from other California prisons due to their violent behavior while serving their time. With the new prison came new jobs for Crescent City residents, along with new families moving to the area, as well as big box stores like Walmart and the Home Depot, squashing some of the smaller owned mom and pop shops. As the city evolved, the Powells were working hard to establish themselves. Tim had been working hard with his brother, doing cabinetry work, and they finally had enough money to move their young family into a tiny home of their own. That's when they welcomed their third child, Taylor, a baby boy who was born on March 30, 1988. The Powells, who hadn't planned any of their pregnancies, were nevertheless thrilled to welcome another little Powell into the fold. However, Taylor was anything but tiny when he was born.
3: Taylor was the big baby and I ended up having an ultrasound, maybe one to two weeks before he was due. They asked me if I wanted to know and I said, oh sure, why not? And so they said, well, you're having a boy. I honestly don't remember why we decided on Taylor. It was actually a name we both liked i liked the name and tim liked the name and i decided you know what it can go either way so if we have a boy taylor if we have a girl be taylor well i knew i was in labor and so my husband stayed home from work and it was just very light and we're waiting 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 nothing was really happening so finally i called my doctor in the afternoon and said you know what i'm sure i've been having these mild labor pains for the last eight hours and nothing seems to be happening and they said well come on in so we went into our doctor who I love and they did a check and they said, okay, you need to go to the hospital right now. Don't stop. Don't get anything. Just go to the hospital. Cause you're ready to have that baby. <laughs> so thankfully we went When we did our Taylor probably would have been born in at home or on the highway. So we got to the hospital and I ended up ha- with him having like back labor. So it was a different kind of pain, but didn't last long because he was born shortly thereafter and my sister-in-law said they were concerned because he looked so purple but I think it was because he was so big he was like nine and a half pounds and I mean he was squished in there he was big so he was big he was healthy and they ran out of blue blankets so he went home in a pink blanket which is kind of funny considering how big he was he goes home in this Cute little pink blanket.
2: Kathy remembers Taylor being the happiest baby, always smiling and starting to walk when he was ten months old, and he was only too eager to follow his older brother wherever he went. Taylor's older brother Andrew, who was two at the time, and his sister Erin, who was five and a half, seemed to adjust well to having a new sibling. Kathy who had only one sibling when she was growing up and had moved a lot as the daughter of an Air Force B-52 navigator during the Vietnam War, was thrilled that her three children had each other and would have the chance to grow up surrounded by so many cousins their own age. Taylor's father, Tim, who had become a skilled carpenter by that point, had renovated their tiny two-bedroom home into a three-bedroom house transforming the attic into a master bedroom. Their life was simple, but happy. As Taylor was preparing to go to kindergarten, his parents realized he was a bit delayed in some areas, specifically struggling with his speech. With therapy, they saw improvements. However, after going through kindergarten, his teacher felt he had other development delays that needed to be addressed before he could move on to the first grade.
3: So Taylor always had difficulty fitting in, you know, when he wasn't with his cousins, because for one thing, he was always the biggest kid in class. He was very tall. And so I think people expected him to know more than he did. I think they just assumed like with size, well, he's older than smarter, he was still learning. So like he had trouble with his motor skills and and they had actually wanted to hold him back in kindergarten, and I said no, because if he was already the biggest kid in class in kindergarten, if he stayed back another year, I mean, and he did not like to stick out, you know, he did not like to be different.
2: Taylor became sensitive to anything that might draw further attention to him and his differences.
3: The school districts are really good about having learning plans for kids. When he got the help then he did pretty good but as he got older he didn't want to be pulled out for any special help because that made him more different than the other kids it didn't go well he would if he got upset what he would do is he basically would just shut down he wouldn't speak he wouldn't do anything like in the classroom he'd just shut down and tune everybody out and that was just his way and another way that taylor was different that was hard on him that I never really realized until he was a little bit older, is that Taylor got the natural tanning, beautiful, darker skin from my side of the family. I have a Hispanic side to my family. So Taylor got beautiful, beautiful skin color. He just browned up really nice in the summertime. and, And he was always darker than us. And Andrew and Aaron were pretty fair. They didn't tan much. And Tim was really fair. He doesn't tan at all. And I tan a little bit. So that kind of bothered him because he was darker than the rest of us. Well, I never even thought about it, you know. I just always admired his skin for how beautiful it was. So he didn't like to be different.
2: Around the fourth grade, Taylor's parents started to notice a drastic shift in his behavior. The Taylor, who they knew to be a bubbly child, seemed angry and was finding it difficult to make friends. The two boys he had become close with both died within a few years of each other. The first boy died after injury sustained from a car accident, and the second friend died from cancer. Taylor was devastated by the loss of the two boys. Not wanting to emphasize Taylor's lack of childhood companions further, Kathy remembers intentionally only allowing her children to have birthday parties that included just their extended family of cousins. Taylor's parents found themselves in uncharted waters, as both of their children, Aaron and Andrew, had always done well in school and never had a problem surrounding themselves with their peers.
3: As a mom, it hurts because you want your kids to be accepted and to do well. And so it was, it was rough.
2: As Taylor grew into a teenager, his anger turned physical. Even today, Kathy says, their family home still bears scars from the years when Taylor would release his anger by kicking or punching the walls. Both Kathy and Tim were at a loss for what had happened to their happy-go-lucky boy.
3: He changed so fast personality-wise that he didn't know what was going on. I thought well is he being abused? You know, I tried to talk to him about it. He would never say anything, but you know, it crossed my mind like what is going on? Why are you becoming this other person? I even had him tested for lead poisoning because my husband, you know, repainted the house and all that, and it was old enough that I had the lead paint. So I had him tested for lead poisoning to make sure that that wasn't affecting him, which it wasn't.
2: Desperate to help Taylor work through his challenges. Kathy wondered if he would benefit from a fresh start, a change of scenery, a place he could rediscover himself and make new friends. She had her eyes set on the Tacoma, Washington area. Still wanting to be near family, Kathy had a grandmother who lived out that way. She did her research and found a county whose schools held high rankings, and she thought it would be the best place for her three children to go through their high school years.
3: I came up to here on 4th of July weekend in 2001. And I had researched and found seven different places to apply to. But because by that time I was called an ophthalmic technician. So I worked with eye doctors and I was certified and my certification was recognized anywhere in the United States. So they already knew that when they interviewed me, I had experience. And so, I had interviews with people from the Olympia area, and I had seven job offers when I went home. By the end of July, I had moved up here and started work in Seattle at a hospital, and uh, Tim packed up the kids, and they moved up, you know, just right when school was starting up here.
2: The Powells ended up moving to University Place, just outside of Tacoma, but soon discovered that the high-ranking high school wasn't necessarily the best fit for their kids.
3: The school district here that they went to was more interested in getting kids into college than in trying to help kids that weren't college material succeed in life. They did not have the type of programs that would have probably been a benefit to Taylor. And if I had had it to do over again... I would have moved into Tacoma School District because they had a lot more programs for kids who had problems with school.
2: In high school, Taylor started going through a rebellious phase that many teenagers go through. The one where it appears that every choice they make is made deliberately to annoy their parents. When in reality, it's a perfectly natural time for teens to begin separating themselves from their parents, discovering who they are and becoming their own person. For Taylor, that meant experimenting with various appearances in high school. At first, everything he wore had to be camouflage, which he later traded in for pants that hung halfway down his backside. Kathy can vividly remember him playing basketball, using one hand to hold up his pants and the other hand to dribble the ball. He then started cutting off the sleeves of all of his t-shirts and started wearing all black, anything with skulls and a leather jacket and chains. Later, Taylor sported a mohawk and got his ears pierced, including plugs. It didn't take long before tattoos started cropping up on his body. It would seem that Taylor was trying to create an outer appearance of a bad boy, while on the inside, he was still the loving, sensitive kid that just wanted to belong and have friends he could relate to. Once again, Taylor found himself unable to fit in and soon stopped attending school. Taylor was clearing six feet at the time, and Kathy, who was five foot five, found herself in an extreme disadvantage while trying to convince her son to go to school.
3: Well, if he didn't want to go to school, he wasn't going to go to school if your kids didn't get to school, eventually, you know, they could call and report you that your child is not going to school. And so you had to go through a court process in order to basically sign over your rights to the court. So that way, if something happened, it wasn't the parents that were held responsible. So we were going through the process of that because, you know, I I couldn't get them to go to school. And they'd say, well, just call the police. I said, what good is that going to do? Sure, they might take him to school, but he's just going to turn around and leave. Why am I going to call the police to escort a belligerent teenager to school, waste their time when they could be doing something more important, when I know he's not going to stay? I said, it's just not, I'm not going to do that.
2: Around this time, Kathy and Tim decided a change of environment would benefit Taylor. Tim's brother Dave and his wife Levon offered to take Taylor in for a year, At their home in Crescent City. When Taylor returned back home with his parents the following year, Kathy and Tim noticed a great improvement in his attitude and behavior. But unfortunately, he eventually slipped back into making bad decisions. Over the next few years, he had two close calls with alcohol poisoning that required hospitalization and an incident with shoplifting in 2007 that became more serious because it was discovered he had a knife in his pocket.
3: Did not want to face the consequences of that and didn't want to go to court to deal with it. You know, and we tried to tell him that you just need to get it taken care of and it's not going to be as big a deal as you think it is, but he had a friend who got into trouble somehow and did jail time, and but what he did, I think, had to do with, like, car theft or something. And then ever since then, his life was pretty much ruined because he had trouble getting a job, and his wages were always garnished. And, and so I think Taylor always had that in the back of his head, that they're going to do all these things to me. And so he just tried to not deal with the fact that he got in trouble. I think that was one of the reasons why he decided to go back to Crescent City.
2: Despite the downward spiral Taylor appeared to be on while he was living in Tacoma, things seemed to improve for him once he moved back to Crescent City. After living with his other aunt and uncle, Pat and Susie, for a while in Crescent City, Taylor started couch surfing. One man named Reuben offered for Taylor to stay at his place in exchange for his help working on small renovation projects around his home, and Taylor was only too pleased to help.
3: Ruben said Taylor was always wanting to help out, no matter what, he always wanted to help and always offered to do stuff for Ruben and was more than happy to help him. Because once Taylor developed a friend, because he always wanted friends so bad, he was a very loyal friend. He would do anything for his friends, anything.
2: Taylor also got a job working at the Good Harvest Cafe in town, and soon He met a group of friends with a common interest. Surfing. Taylor had always had a love for the water, and Crescent City had the perfect beach for surfers. A long, beautiful, sweeping crescent-shaped beach where sand dollars and driftwood adorn the white sands. It's the perfect place for families to picnic and spend a day on the beach, and for the local surfers to catch some waves. Over the next few years, Taylor continued to develop friendships with other surfers and people in the community, and was becoming hopeful about his future. He was working on restoring an old truck, and from a distance, Taylor and his parents had been working at repairing their relationship. Kathy recalls Taylor often calling them for advice.
3: You know, every once in a while he'd call and ask me for a recipe or something or ask me about his health records or if he should go to the doctor. But, you know, most of the time I just passed the phone to Tim because I figured he wanted to talk to Tim. Taylor was Tim's buddy. Taylor really admired his dad. My husband has a 54 Chevy truck that he drives. and So Taylor had wanted to buy a truck and did some work, he said. And I'm the one that ended up co-signing the loan. Well, we got to Crescent city and we saw that truck. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it was the ugliest truck I'd ever seen. You know, it was all broken down. It was sitting in the shop. So he totally restored it and fixed it up. And I think, Oh, if I could fix this truck up, cause Tim fixed his up and Taylor loved Tim's truck. That, Dad would be really proud of me type thing.
2: Once Taylor had contacted them to tell them about a possible opportunity to make some quick money working at a medical marijuana farm just south of Crescent City in Humboldt County. For those who have watched the Netflix docuseries Murder Mountain, you're familiar with the dangers that can be associated with that area. The six-part series focuses primarily on the disappearance and murder of a 29-year-old man named Garrett Rodriguez, a cannabis grower who had moved to the area in hopes of earning quick cash so he could build this dream home on a plot of land his father had given him In Mexico, the true crime series also reveals that Garrett is one of the many to have gone missing in the county, and one of the many who have been murdered in an area where local pot growers are less than cooperative working with law enforcement. For one reason or another, things didn't pan out for Taylor to make the move out to Humboldt County. In the meantime, he was quietly working towards his GED, and his parents were trying to convince him to move back with them and face his 2007 shoplifting charge, and he was seriously considering it.
3: We were trying to get him to come back home, deal with the court issues, get that out of the way, come back and live with us. You know, we'd help him go to school or get a job, whatever he needed to do, but we wanted him to come back and help him figure out what he wanted to do.
2: In May, 2010. The Powell family were all brought back together again for a beautiful occasion Aaron Powell's wedding. Taylor's sister was getting married. Their brother Andrew even made the trip from Clarksville, Tennessee, where he was stationed at Fort Campbell in the 101st Airborne Division.
3: That was the best family time I think we ever had. I mean, everybody had such a good time together. It was not a negative experience. As a family unit, it was amazing. And I'm so glad we had that time together.
2: It would be the last time Kathy and Tim would see their son alive. On the week of March 15th, 2009, Taylor called his parents on three separate occasions excited about how things were going for him. The truck he'd been working on was getting a new engine. He was seriously contemplating becoming an underwater welder. He was dating someone he really liked, and he'd finally managed to establish a group of friends he felt a strong connection towards. One of those friends just happened to be a 26-year-old Crescent City native named Jared Wyatt. Taylor had met Jared through mutual friends and both shared a love for surfing. Aside from surfing, Jared also had another passion, fighting. Jared, who started out boxing when he was 10 years old, had become a mixed martial arts fighter and was training hard in hopes of eventually making it to the UFC. In April 2010, Jared fought his first ever tough man event at a casino in Trinidad, California, where he won first place in the heavyweight competition. The tough man fights include two rounds that are one minute each, requiring fighters to work quickly to knock their opponent out, often in a brutal fashion. In January 2010, Jared told a local newspaper reporter from The Triplicate that he'd been fighting one way or another Since he could remember, he said that he felt all fighting was worthwhile. This is my yoga, he said. You can't beat up the idiots in the grocery store or the guy who cuts you off. Frustration builds up and fighting something is a great release. He went on to say, since he started to fight competitively, he doesn't get into actual fights anymore. Which wasn't entirely accurate. Jared was known to be a bit of a hothead and would often pick fights with total strangers for no apparent reason. On Friday, March 19, 2010, while he was at the beach surfing, Jared assaulted a teenage boy because he didn't like the brand of his surfboard. An ex-girlfriend of Jared's was quoted saying, He intentionally hurts people. He always has. Anytime we went anywhere, Jared was hurting someone, beating them up, or threatening to kill them. It's what he enjoyed. It's what he wanted to do. He didn't care about anybody else. But despite Jared's known short fuse, Taylor looked up to him and wanted to do whatever he could to support his newfound friend in his professional fighting career. To the point that he would even spar with him. During his training, Taylor also loved the fact that Jared had two dogs. Growing up, Taylor had always wanted a dog and really enjoyed the added perk of getting to hang out with Jared's pets whenever they would spend time together. Saturday, March 20th, 2010 just happened to be one of those evenings that Taylor and Jared planned on hanging out because Taylor's truck still wasn't ready. Another friend named Justin, also known as Shorty, agreed to pick up Taylor after he had finished work that evening and drove him out to Jared's. Jared was house-sitting in a place that was 30 minutes south of Crescent City in another town called Klamath. The home was located up a winding dirt road just off Interstate 101 overlooking the mouth of the Klamath River. Although it was in a fairly isolated area, It just so happened to have a spectacular view. On top of house-sitting the property, Jared was also put in charge of pruning and caring for a room full of marijuana plants. At the house that evening, there was also another guest, a woman named Billy Joe, Jared's girlfriend. The foursome had plans to party together and drink some tea made from hallucinogenic mushrooms. It was after they drank the tea that the night took a horrific turn. By the early morning, Taylor had been murdered. The following evening, on Sunday, March 21st, 2010, is when Kathy Powell received the telephone call from the Del Norte County Sheriff's Department.
3: So I was cooking dinner. It was just me and Tim at the house and he was down in our lower level doing some welding. And uh, the phone rang, Del Norte County Sheriff, you know, was the caller. And my first thought was not that Taylor was hurt or anything, I thought he got himself into trouble. And they asked to speak with Tim, I said, okay, hold on. And So I took the phone down there and I said, it's the sheriff, they want to speak with you. I said, I don't know, maybe Taylor got in trouble again. And so I handed Tim the phone. And then I went back upstairs to finish cooking. And then I could hear Tim saying, no, you're lying. I don't believe you. It's not possible. You've got to be lying. And so then I went downstairs because I, you know, what, what was going on? What's the problem? I was asking him. I mean, he finally got off the phone and said that Taylor had been killed. And um, it's just like, what? <laughs> you know what? You know, we didn't really know anything. I think all they told me is that he had been stabbed is what I think they told him. And so, it's just like you see in the movies when you first hear the news, you know, you just, I collapsed and I was crying out. But then my mind kind of went into, okay, we got to go in the morning. We have to go to Crescent City. I think it was just kind of an autopilot thing, kind of a self-preservation. We got to get hold of the kids. We got to call work. We're going to be gone. You know, maybe our friend Lori can come watch the animals for us. I'm trying to get everything done so we can leave in the morning. Tim's just sitting there, just stunned. And I kept trying to call the kids. They weren't picking up. And finally, I got hold of them. And I said, we're coming over. Because I told him, I said, we have to go tell them in person. We can't call them on the phone. We have to go tell them. So we drove over there. And Aaron knew as soon as she opened the door that something was wrong. And her first thought was, oh my God, something happened to Andrew. And we said, no, it's Andrew's it Taylor. We drove down. It's a nine hours to get there from where we live. And on that whole drive, I don't think Tim and I hardly said a word. We were both just kinda at a loss for words.
2: After making the long drive to Crescent City, the Powells heard the first version of what had happened.
3: All we really knew was that he had been stabbed, that he got in a fight and he had been stabbed. And then we get there, Monday night we get there, all his cousins were there. And they told us what they heard was that Taylor was at Jared's place and That's when we first heard Jared, because we didn't know who Jared was, and that something had happened, and Jared was upset, and that Taylor had taken Billy Joe to the bedroom to keep her safe. And then he was trying to talk Jared down, instead of trying to hurt him, he was trying to calm him down, which obviously didn't work. So that was the first story we heard. Which is the one that I believe?
2: Although the sheriff's department hadn't divulged much information to the media at that point, everyone in the small town already seemed to know what had happened, and rumors were beginning to fly. As devastated as the Powells felt, things were only going to get worse. Still in complete shock over the news that Taylor had been murdered, they had no time to grieve. A memorial service had to be organized, and arrangements for Taylor's body had to be made.
3: Fortunately for us, Aaron and David, they were just so together and helpful. They wrote the obituary for us, and my brother-in-law Dave arranged for the church do the memorial service. So we had all our family and friends in Crescent City help with the stuff in Crescent City that needed to be done.
2: It wasn't until Kathy asked to see Taylor's body before he was cremated that more details about his murder came out.
3: We went first to the sheriff's office. They basically told us what the scenario was that They were doing mushrooms, and and then there was a spike. And I guess at that point, I was still thinking that he had been stabbed. So I had asked if we could go see Taylor. And that's when more details came out then when they said, Well, no, you really can't. And I'm like, Well, why can't we? And then they told me about what he had done to his face. They told us that he had taken out his heart and that his tongue had been cut out so i said well can we at least look at his hand it's very important for people to have that closure of actually seeing their loved one to make their mind connect that yes this is real your loved one is gone and so they arranged for us to be able to see his hand. So before the memorial service on Thursday, me and Tim and Aaron and David and Andrew went and were able to see his hand. And uh, I remember, you know, they had him all wrapped up and I wanted to touch where his face was, but I was afraid to, because I, I knew what he had done to his face. So I, I touched where his feet were and. Touched his hand, which was, of course, very white and very cold. and He had such big hands. I think I was still in such a state of shock because the eye part, we didn't find out until we went to the mortuary and we were talking to them and they're the ones that told us about his eyes.
2: On the early morning of March 21st, 2010, Jared Wyatt was arrested on suspicion for killing Taylor Powell. Two days later, at the Del Norte Superior Court, Judge William Follett recited the lists of charges against Jared Wyatt. In addition to murder, Wyatt was charged with felony, aggravated mayhem, and torture, as well as special allegations related to each count for the use of a deadly weapon that was described in the court as a sharp-bladed instrument. In California, aggravated mayhem is considered a severe injury against another person with the intent to cause harm, disability, disfigurement, or to deprive him or her from organs, members, or limbs the charges hinted towards the gruesome nature of Taylor's death. At the arraignment, Jared did not enter a plea, as his lawyer, James Fallman, requested more time, because he said his client was still under the influence of psychedelic mushrooms. On Thursday, March 25th, while over 300 people packed a local Crescent City church for Taylor's memorial service, Jarrah's lawyer was pleading not guilty to the charges on behalf of his client in court. He was also prepared to argue against a safe-keeper motion made by the county sheriff's office to have his client moved from the county jail to the Pelican Bay State Prison. Over security concerns. Earlier that week, a declaration had been submitted by the sheriff's office stating that Wyatt was a security risk because he'd been involved in a series of assaults leading up to Taylor's murder. The declaration also indicated that even Jared's own mother had described him as being a very dangerous person who has the potential to harm jail staff. Another concern was that Jared had indicated that he wanted to kill himself. In the end, the judge denied the sheriff's request, stating that the large part of the declaration was based on hearsay. Over the next two and a half years, Taylor's case was entangled in a myriad of political and judicial disputes and allegations. The first was when Jared's lawyer attempted to have the DA for Taylor's case Mike Reese, removed from the proceedings because Jared claimed to have seen him at a drug house five years prior. Wyatt claimed he couldn't get a fair trial with Reese as the prosecutor because he had a vendetta to keep him quiet about the alleged drug activity. However, Judge Follett denied the motion. After reviewing a written response by Mike Reese and stated that that Wyatt's recollection was based on some very vague mushroom-induced memory. At the preliminary hearing held on May 26, 2010, Jared's lawyer made an attempt to lessen the charges, claiming that what had happened that night was more like manslaughter. At the hearing, Jared's lawyer called his sole witness, Wyatt's girlfriend at the time, Billy Joe. She testified that the four of them had decided to take the hallucinogenic mushrooms together by making a tea-like solution. From there, things got hazy real fast. I couldn't make sense of anything at the time, she said. I didn't know what was real and what was not. When Del Norte County Sheriff's Detective Ed Fleshman took the witness stand, he indicated that the accounts given by Billy Joe and Justin, who were both present at the night of the murder, were disjointed, strange, and sometimes even contradictory. However, between the police report, what we've learned from Taylor's mother, Kathy Powell, and a transcribed conversation Jared had between his mother and his brother, The day after he murdered Taylor, this is what we were able to piece together. After Justin picked up Taylor from work, they headed over to the house Jared was house sitting at in Klamath, where Jared and his girlfriend Billy Joe were already waiting. After they arrived, they prepared the tea made with hallucinogenic mushrooms, which they all drank. Prior to drinking the tea, Jared had been reportedly in a good mood, but it wasn't long before his behavior changed. He suddenly began complaining that his eyes were burning, and became argumentative with the others. Attempting to protect Billy Joe, Taylor moved her into one of the bedrooms. During Jared's prison conversation with his mother and brother, he told them that Taylor then announced that he was God, and that Jared needed to build him an ark for him and Billy Joe. By this point, it was pouring rain outside, and Jared and Taylor started talking about a tidal wave coming. That's when apparently, Jared yelled at Taylor, This is my house, these are my things, and this is my old lady's things and her house so don't disrespect me in my house. At that point, Justin made an attempt to leave, but Jared wouldn't allow him. That's when Taylor held Jared down in the kitchen, so Justin could escape. From the outside of the home, Justin peered in through the window to see what was happening, and witnessed the two of them arguing. one minute and then hugging the next. Jared then spotted Justin looking through the window and took off after him. Justin then hopped into his car and started driving down the laneway. That's when Jared jumped onto the hood of his car and started kicking in the windshield. Justin then apparently got out of his car and pulled Jared off the hood. Jared then, started screaming and crying, telling Justin, there were monsters everywhere. The demons are going to get you. Justin then hugged Jared for a minute, and that's when he went crazy again. Jared then started calling his dog, who came running down the road. Laying down on the ground, crying, he held onto his dog. Justin took that opportunity to get back into his car and he took off it wasn't until 4 20 a.m sunday morning that justin finally called police and led them to the residence upon entering the home officers found jared naked and covered in blood jared had abrasions on his hands knuckles and the bottom of his right foot. He told officers, I killed him. Taylor's dead body was found on the couch. An autopsy report would later show that Taylor had been punched so many times that every bone in his face had been broken. The coroner was also able to determine that parts of Taylor's body had been removed while he was still alive. Taylor also suffered defense wounds to his hands, forearms, knees, and legs. The murder weapon was a pair of shears used for pruning the marijuana plants in the home. The entire time Jared was savagely murdering Taylor, Billy Joe was hiding in the bedroom. Her phone records would later show that Justin had attempted to call her several times after he left, but her phone was in the kitchen and she was too afraid to come out. Nobody could understand why instead of calling police right away, Justin had left and drove all the way back home and was calling Billy Joe's phone instead. Kathy, who wanted to be prepared to hear the details of her son's murder prior to hearing them in court, had explicitly asked the coroner to tell her everything. She was absolutely horrified to learn for the first time that her son had been alive the entire time he suffered the extensive mutilation inflicted by Jared.
3: They had the coroner from Eureka come because they had to put what the charges were. So he was there to go over the preliminary details of the death. And that's when I found out was in the courtroom that Taylor was still alive when he was doing all that damage to his face and that, that's why he cut his tongue out because he could hear him making noises. And it was very upsetting to me. I had always been told they he always told me he had been dead by that time. And that was not true. I broke down. They had to take me out of the courtroom. And they had to take me out to a different area because they could hear me because I was so upset and crying. And the damage he did to my son and what he went through, it was, man, that was rough. That was
2: really hard. But the nightmare was far from over for the Powells. Over the next two and a half years, Kathy Powell was held hostage to the court system, geared towards ensuring that Jared Wyatt would receive a fair trial. In the first year, the Powells were waiting for their son's trial. Kathy spent a great deal of time just trying to keep informed about her son's case.
3: I'm just a mom. I don't know anything about how the court works or the rules of court or anything like that, because I've never had to deal with the court before. And I was very frustrated that I'm not being told things and being kept informed. They're supposed to let you know when something's going to be happening, and the communication was not very good. They have to let you know. I mean, it's, it's your right to know when all these little things are going on. There was a point in time when I was so upset about not hearing about all these different little postponements or when they were having these little hearings, because that's what they were, were small hearings that I finally wrote letters. July 6, 2011. I am writing this letter to remind your office of Marcy's Law. On November 4th, 2008, the voters of the state of California approved Proposition 9, the Victims Bill of Rights Act of 2008, Marcy's Law, a measure to provide all victims with rights in due process. I can't even begin to count all the times I've had to contact your office to find out when any pretrial hearing actions, etc., are being held or changed, only to find out a hearing had taken place without my knowledge. In this day and age, with emails, cell phones, telephones, even mail, there is no excuse for me not to be notified of any changes or dates that have been scheduled in regards to my son Taylor Powell's case. I am also extremely upset by the fact that when I call your office stating my name, Kathy Powell, calling for Mr. John Alexander regarding my son Taylor, which the person who answers your phone has no idea what I'm talking about. I then have to refer to the Jared Wyatt case, the person who murdered my son. Delmore County is extremely small. I cannot believe that the people in your office do not recognize my son's name or mine. I do not feel I have to refer to Jared Wyatt when I call. My son has a name. His name is Taylor. He is not just a victim. He was a person loved by many people. I know he is just one of the many cases you have. But how many of those cases are murder cases? Every time I call you, Mr. Alexander, you're out of the office. You do not return my calls. There is no way you can understand what I'm going through. I would be insulted if you said you could. But having to deal with the DA's office and the justice system just adds to my and my family's pain. I'm hoping that after reading this, your office and yourself will keep me better informed of the status of the case. Even though I live in Washington, I plan on being in Crescent City whenever necessary. I just need a day in advance notice to get there. And I need someone to let me know when I need to be present. What might not seem important to you may be very important to me. As a mother, my family is very important to me. I will do everything in my power to seek justice for my son. Also enclosed is a picture of my family. Just as a reminder that we are real people and do not want to be treated like an impersonal court number.
2: In June, Jared's lawyer entered dual pleas of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. His attorney told the triplicate newspaper, If you just plead not guilty by reason of insanity, then you've agreed that your client is guilty. Over the next year, the Powells watched helplessly as their son's case was handed from one DA to another. The second refiled the case to include special circumstances under a first-degree murder count in hopes to ensure that a conviction would give Jared life without the possibility of parole, which the prior charge did not. Both sides agreed that the original case would be dismissed, that the death penalty would not be sought, which Kathy Powell, had always expressed being adamantly against from the beginning. Later that same year, the new DA was on trial himself for misconduct and was looking at the possibility of being disbarred. During that time, court proceedings were delayed once again, awaiting two separate psych evaluations to determine whether Jared was sane or not when he murdered Taylor. He then needed to be assessed once again so they could find out if he was competent enough to stand trial. Additionally, there was another source of anxiety when the primary judge overseeing the trial was set to be retiring. The Powells were further traumatized every single time another article was published about the case, whether by the local Crescent City newspaper or another media outlet that had caught wind of the grisly murder. No matter what it was they were updating the public about the case, every single article would describe in gruesome detail the manner in which Taylor was savagely attacked and murdered. On April 6, 2012, a clinical summary was submitted to the DA and the prosecutor by a forensic pathologist named Cyril Wecht. Over the course of his career, Wecht has consulted on a number of high-profile cases, including John F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Elvis Presley, John Benet Ramsey, Lacey Peterson, and Anna Nicole Smith. The clinical summary included portions of the police report, the autopsy report, the toxicology report, and the psychological evaluations conducted by the two separate doctors. The toxicology showed the presence of cannabinoids in Jared's system, but not psilocybin. Psilocybin is the substance contained in hallucinogenic mushrooms. However, the half-life of psilocybin is quite short and can be eliminated fairly quickly through the kidneys, depending on the dose. Also, Jared's blood samples weren't taken until 11.20 a.m. on Sunday six hours after he was arrested, and probably close to 10 to 12 hours after he had ingested it. The first doctor to evaluate Jared stated that in his opinion, Jared had experienced psilocybin-induced psychotic disorder with delusions with onset during intoxication. He also mentioned possible anabolic steroid-induced mood disorder and post-traumatic Encephalopathy. Traumatic encephalopathy is a type of trauma that can occur to the brain of individuals involved in contact sports. The second doctor to evaluate Jared offered a very similar opinion. He also mentioned the possibility of schizoaffective disorder, a mental health condition that includes features of both schizophrenia and a mood disorder such as bipolar disorder, or depression. We asked Dr. Frank Miller, a triple-boarded psychiatrist in adult psychiatry, child adolescence, and geriatric psychiatry who's been practicing since 1978 to better help us understand Jared Wyatt's psych evaluations. We wanted to know what exactly determines if a person experienced temporary insanity or not.
4: In California in the 70s, there were a series of cases that started to plea temporary insanity because of changes made to the courts all over this country and in England. What started to happen is the use of NGRI started to get very restricted in this in this country. And that came to a head in the John Hinckley case, the fellow who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and it set off a firestorm in this country. The public pretty much felt Hinckley should not have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that really accelerated the movement to restrict the use of the insanity plea. And the temporary insanity thing sort of arose as a mechanism to cover the situation in which people committed heinous acts, always capital murder cases. You don't plead NGRI for shoplifting, but it's always reserved for murder cases. And you you would posit to, in most definitions in states uh, the presence of a mental defect, meaning a mental illness, and that it was. Pretty much restricted in utilization to a crime of passion. And that cuts out many situations where somebody can be mentally ill, but still have a lot of intentionality left, a lot of calculation. Planning that sort of thing, so those elements were ruled out, and it had to be you know a fever pitch of mad jealousy that gripped you and you shot your wife's lover and killed him. That's the classic situation. Now, under California law, this fellow with his substance abuse, in one viewpoint many people would say, well, uh, you know, that was a one-time event. He took the psilocybin hallucinogenic mushroom. He became psychotic with this psilocybin-induced psychosis, which is true, and that's why he did it. That was temporary because later he came out of it, but this never really got processed in court because of the early plea. I, I think that they anticipated that the temporary insanity plea defense would not be uh, workable under California law, because this gentleman they're saying uh, had some history, and I guess we don't have you know historical medical records that document that, and you know substance abuse, you know, it would have been cleaner if this fellow had no history of mental illness and no prior history of substance abuse, he took the mushroom once, and it happened, and it was temporary, then he might have, have had a legitimate defense. Now, that's all speculative, and I wouldn't be surprised if 500 attorneys from California emailed me and called me an idiot. But you know, there is a potential for that, possibly. But under the legal definitions that have existed since this case in 70s, I believe, in California, uh, there's too much extra baggage to say that it was temporary. So, in essence, the legal system viewed him as culpable, even though he had a substance-induced psychosis.
2: We thought our listeners might also be curious to know why people can react so differently to taking hallucinogenic drugs.
4: There's a long line of knowledge and research coming out of the 70s and 80s that showed that the context in which people take drugs that alter consciousness and perception is all important. So, if everybody's calm and placid and there's wonderful Navajo flute music playing in the background, chances are things will go fairly well. But if somebody plays tell a scary story from outside the campfire, kind of tricks and makes scary noises and jumps in with a frightening mask on, nothing is guaranteed except there's a high likelihood that some folks will react badly. So context is important. On the other hand, this sort of everybody's chilled out viewpoint is perhaps a modern distortion. Uh, that wants to portray use of mind-altering drugs as fairly benign. What gets lost is that even with marijuana, nowadays in the last 10 years at least, maybe 20 years, the potency of marijuana is at least 20 times what it was during the Vietnam era. The other thing is that people who have a vulnerability to distorted mental states and it could be as mild as somebody with a panic disorder. Any drugs can just set them off. Now, if you have a major mental illness, an ongoing recurrent psychotic disorder, somebody who has that diathesis or potential is really playing with fire. And if 1% of the population at least has schizophrenia or bipolar illness, that's a lot of people worldwide. Those are the kind of things that play into this.
2: One of the doctors who assessed Jared suggested the possibility of an anabolic steroid-induced mood disorder and also post-traumatic encephalopathy. We asked Dr. Miller to explain how hallucinogenic mushrooms combined with these two other factors could have played a part in Jared's shocking reaction the night he murdered Taylor.
4: One of the things that we know the least about is probably the steroid effects over time. You know, they shrink testicles, but it appears as though they have effects on the self-control areas of the brain, the frontal lobes that help us say no to ourselves think before we act, talk something out instead of slugging somebody. And when you have reduced abilities in your inhibitory areas of the brain that are responsible for us being civilized, then you get impulsive and quicker to anger and quicker to fighting. And so all these things sort of play together. It appears as though that the adolescent years where people abuse substances, especially hallucinogenics and methamphetamines and, to a lesser extent, marijuana, but probably also steroids, I expect. Adolescent brains are particularly vulnerable to the brain-damaging effects of these issues. So what do we do the worst? We have kids who have not very good judgment until their early to late 20s when that matures in the brain. So they use drugs and drink alcohol, and that's not good either. And they play football and bang their head. So, if it were up to me, I'd protect every adolescent from substance abuse, from football, soccer, wrestling, martial arts, and drugs, because it looks like you can do more damage at that, say, 10 year period from 15 on to 25 than any other time in life. That's why we have the incidence of crime in violent offenders peaks in late adolescence on through the thirties. That's who uh, is violent and impulsive. Males before their brains kind of settle down.
2: Finally, in May of 2012, Judge Foley ruled that Jarrett was competent to stand trial and a date was set for September 10, 2012. But just two days before the trial, as Kathy Powell was making all the arrangements to make the drive from University Place down to Crescent City, she got a phone call from the DA.
3: So that's when Tim and Erin and I all got together to talk about this
2: plea deal. On September 6th, Jared Wyatt appeared in court to plead guilty to first-degree murder and three counts of mayhem that would give him 47 years to life. At Jared's sentencing, six of Taylor's relatives, including Kathy, read impact statements and showed a video that included photos of Taylor.
3: So we showed a slideshow and I didn't look at it because I knew what it was on it. I was watching Jared to see what his reaction was to see that Taylor grew up in a normal, loving family and he had a good upbringing. I wanted him to see that Taylor had a life before Jared ever entered his life. I wanted his family to see that we were a normal family. So I was just watching him during that time period. He seemed dejected, I guess. I mean, he looked at it, and I think he seemed kind of surprised at times by some of the things he saw, but he did watch it.
2: Following the sentencing, Kathy, who had been asking for the past two years to be able to speak with Jared and his family directly, finally got her chance.
3: He told me that Taylor was his best friend. He felt like that there had been another presence involved in the house, like a demon type thing that had been causing him problems and he said the reason why everything took so long was all on his mother and that she was just not right he said he didn't realize that taylor already knew because he you know he tried to say well he taught taylor this and he taught taylor that well when he's watching the videos he could see oh i wasn't the one so he he talked about some of the pictures he saw and i said yeah yeah taylor you had to do that before he met you he'd been getting tattoos I said, you have a lot of nieces and nephews. I hope that you can try to be, even though you're in jail, be a positive influence for them and not a negative one. You know, try to, even though you're in jail, just try to be accountable, I guess, for your actions. Think about your family, what you're doing.
2: One person from Jared's family had reached out to Kathy after Taylor was murdered, and that was his grandmother, Janice. Her and Kathy corresponded back and forth over the next few years. And on top of offering her condolences to the Powell family, Jared's grandmother also provided some background information on Jared's childhood. She said it had been tough for him growing up and felt that it was a contributing factor as to why Jared had developed such a temper. It meant a lot to Kathy to be able to connect with someone from Jared's family. She imagined the whole ordeal had been difficult on them and felt no ill will towards them. Before Jared's sentencing, Taylor's mom, who had been the primary representative and spokesperson for the Powell family, was also given an opportunity to prepare a statement for the parole board. In her statement, she was able to go over not only the impact her son's murder had on her and her family, but the aftermath effect it had on them, dealing with a judicial system that appeared more geared towards the rights of a murderer rather than the surviving victims.
3: Finding out my son had been murdered was the worst day of my life. Incomprehensible, indescribable, unimaginable, heartbreaking. My son went out after work to have a good time with his friends. Then to be brutally beaten, mutilated, and murdered by his friend, the greatest betrayal a friend could do to him. I wasn't told about his eyes being removed until we got to the mortuary, and I happened to say something about his eyes. The coroner neglected to inform us when we met with him. I didn't find out about his tongue was removed until I went to the first preliminary hearing. Very shocking to hear in a courtroom. The coroner reassured me time and time again that my son was dead prior to the mutilation. Then to hear, he was still alive during the mutilation. Again, in the courtroom during the second and hearing, it was just too much to bear. Having to research the codes to show proof why I thought it was a first-degree murder case and how other charges justified a life without parole sentence, that shouldn't have been my responsibility. I had to prove to them why they needed to file a first-degree murder charge. Knowing the details of the death certificate were going to be published was very traumatic. We had not told our family or friends the extent of his injuries but were forced to once we knew they were going to be published. Having to see, in quotations, warning, this story contains extremely graphic content. Every time a story was printed in certain papers regarding my son's death was difficult. It seemed like they always wanted to print the details. Not being able to have inaccurate details corrected was very frustrating. Having three professional men, attorneys no less, constantly telling me during the election process how unprofessional and unqualified the others were. I heard vicious stories from all three of them that weren't any of my business, feeling pressured to support one of them when I couldn't even vote in California, having the current district attorney making derogatory remarks regarding the former district attorney and former employees. Again, none of my business. I did not need to know. I did not appreciate being in the middle of the vendetta between Mr. Reese and Mr. Alexander Being pressured to agree to the death penalty by one of the investigators when I had made my feelings known all along, I didn't believe in the death penalty. Frustration with different trial dates. I was told by Mr. Reese it would be done before the end of 2010. I was told by Mr. Alexander it would be resolved by the end of 2011. I have been held hostage to the unknown, never knowing when I could plan a trip or go to an event as I never knew when I would need to go to California. I did not go visit other family members as often as I would have liked, as the majority of my free time was used to go to court. The initial shock and distress of seeing pictures of Mr. Wyatt show up on Facebook, pictures of his family members took while he was in custody. This happened twice. I spent a lot of money to travel to Crescent City over over the past two and a half years. Gas, food, wear and tear on my car, hotels, loss of income from missing work. Then there was a cost of all my health related problems and, of course, a lot of medication. I cannot not put a price on my mental status or the hole in my heart. I do not want restitution for Mr. Wyatt. I willingly paid monetarily what I had to in order to get justice for my son, to be there for him as much as I was able. My son, Taylor Powell, is gone forever due to the actions of Jared Wyatt. No amount of money will ever bring him back. It seems like such an insult to put a price on his death. All of the above and more have caused much emotional, physical, and mental distress. They are all directly or indirectly due to Jared Wyatt murdering my son, Taylor
2: Powell. After all was said and done, Taylor's mom, who had spent the past two and a half years of her life determined to do everything in her power to get justice for her son, found herself in unfamiliar territory. She no longer had trial proceedings she had to chase after lawyers to find out about she no longer needed to research laws or write letters to ensure Jared got the sentence he deserved. No more nine hours of driving back and forth from Washington to California. What she was left to deal with was the full weight of a heartbreaking reality. That her youngest son Taylor had been brutally murdered by his best friend, and that she would never get to touch or hold him again. She would never get to see the man he was becoming, the wonderful husband and father he could have been. He was gone forever. Taylor was murdered nine days before his 22nd birthday. It's been nine years since the Powell's son was brutally murdered and Kathy has become painfully aware of how careful she needs to be when people ask her how her son died.
3: What I have learned is people can't handle hearing how Taylor died. Even in our support group that we used to go to where you talk about how your child was killed, I've had people get up and leave. I had one person come to me and say i can honestly say i'm so glad my child was shot i don't tell people anymore how he died because they can't handle it it has been in my head now since 2010 so i mean i've compartmentalized in there sometimes something will You know, especially because when I was still in ophthalmology, I had to work with eyes all the time. And that was just really, really, really hard. Because I know how eyeballs are removed. So what I tell people now is if you really want to know, I tell them to Google Jared's name.
2: While Kathy and her husband were in Crescent City preparing for Taylor's memorial, they were touched to have complete strangers approaching them to tell them how much Taylor had meant to them. The day after Taylor's memorial service, a group of his surfer friends did a paddle out into the ocean to pay tribute to him. In the days, weeks, and months to follow, Kathy would continue to receive heartwarming messages from people all over who knew and loved Taylor sharing with her all the ways in which her son had touched their lives.
1: I think he kind of liked to have this image of himself as kind of like a tough guy, like a punk, but I think deep down he was like a real softy, and he was, especially, you know, towards the end, he was very, very protective of people he loved. He would always tell me,
4: like, if you ever have any trouble with size, you tell me right away. I'll come out I'll kick your ass. <laughs> so he, he was telling me,
1: you just tell me if you ever need
4: help and I'll be there. So, yeah, I, I definitely miss him. Karen Powell. Back in the late 90s, Taylor was my little buddy. And I have fond memories of playing frisbee out in the street whenever it wasn't raining or windy. My own son has cerebral palsy, And is severely handicapped and confined, so I don't get to do the things most dads get to do. So, to play Frisbee in baseball or just shoot the ball with Taylor was very special to me. I know it's not much comfort to hear this, and it's corny, but heaven is a little more heavenly with Taylor there. I'm really blessed to have been his neighbor. Sincerely, Mike.
3: Oh my sweet, sweet Taylor, we are so sad. Our hearts are breaking. You are a light in our lives
1: and always so full of love for your family. We will miss your quick smile, your playful nature, and of course, your wonderful hugs. I wish it weren't so. LaVon Powell Dear Taylor, When I think of you, I always will remember your smile and big hugs for me ever since you were seven years old. I loved your free spirit, admire your courage, and oh yeah, your mohawk. You know, in people's lifespans you meet few that make an impact in their lives and for me, you are one of them. I want you to know I will cherish you and your memory forever. I will try to work harder to be a better person to give people more love and oh yeah, more hugs too. I want you to know I will honor your memory by doing a kind act and I will do that In Taylor Powell's legacy, my memory to you will be dedicating my love and work to make more people smile. Love you always. Mosh McElfresh.
2: I'm so happy you came into my life. You will always have my heart. Love is
3: not mortal. I can't wait to see you again. You will never
4: be forgotten. You
3: helped me so much. We grew together. I wish we could have had all we talked about. Blood, sweat, and tears, baby. I will always be yours. Love you so much. Sarah
4: T-Bone, there are so many things I admire about you. Like how you didn't judge people. Now you had such a soft and tender heart. I admire your bravery. You were so brave. There was never a time when you didn't have my back. I'm going to miss you so much, man. I can't even say how much I will miss you. I won't ever forget you. I won't ever forget your sacrifice, and I won't ever forget how you cared about people. You are my hero, and I'm forever going to be changed. I love you, man, and I'll see you in the water. Kevin Hawkins
1: Taylor came into my life, and for whatever reasons, he was familiar, like family, and I knew I would know him forever. He was my friend, and he was my little brother. He would have done anything for me, and I believe he knew I'd do anything for him. I'm proud to know him. My life is richer for it, and now he gets to meet my brother, and I have one more person I love to greet me when I die. He was special and will be dearly missed. Jennifer Smith
0: Taylor, to me, is a symbol of strength and loyalty. He helped my family throughout hardest times. When I lost my home in Washington, Taylor came up and moved me from Everett, back to Crescent City. I'm glad to have known him. Elizabeth Smith. Taylor didn't just say hello. He was the hello. From the time he was five years old till three weeks ago, he still hugged me with love in his arms. I love you, Taylor, and I will see you later. Darren McElfresh
4: Taylor was one of my best, closest friends. He had the biggest heart of anyone I know. When he loved someone, he loved them he was hundred percent dedicated to all his friends and he always had their back i love taylor so much i will miss that smile love you bro craig powell
3: he was an awesome young man he was always a welcome face and i pray god has welcomed him as lovingly as i did miss you taylor bug connie scott
0: taylor you were genuine kind and stoked on life You are so proud of yourself and your dedication to surfing. I'm sorry I never told you how much I admire your character. I'm sorry not to have shared more moments with you. I hope to see you again, buddy. Jimmy Jesperson I cried so much. I really miss you and I always will. We all love you. We will always love you. I will never forget you. Remember, we're all here for you. Oh, and do you want to know what's funny? Everyone, I mean everyone, loves your smile. Forever with me, I love you, and I'm only nine, but I can't wait to see you again. With love, Natalie Smith.
2: I'd like to give a special thank you to the Powell family for spending so much time with us, helping us tell Taylor's story. And also thank you to Dr. Frank Miller for his insights on Jared Wyatt. I would also like to thank our wonderful community of listeners and podcast hosts who took the time to voice the heartwarming messages sent to the Powells. It's clear how much Taylor touched the lives of so many. And now I would like to introduce two podcasts, Coast to Ghost.
1: It was a dark and stormy night.
0: Wait, why does it have to be dark and stormy?
4: Yeah, why can't it be daytime and clear skies?
0: Oh, for fuck's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> Join us bi-weekly on Coast to Ghost as we take a trip cross-country digging up the ghost of your state. Drinks
4: are included and pants are optional.
1: You can listen to Coast to Ghost on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to get spooked?
2: And case closed.
0: The gun was large and chrome-plated, the morning sun glinting off the polished surface. Four times the man pulled the trigger. From Macmillan Podcasts, this is Case Closed. My name is Charlie Spicer. I'm an executive editor from St. Martin's Press, and I've edited hundreds of true crime books in my 33 years here. I know there's so much true crime out there already, And so much of it doesn't really have an ending. You're left feeling unresolved. For this show, we're going to talk about cases that do get resolved, where they catch the killer, where the evidence stacks up to a conviction. Our first season covers the murder of Rusty Snyderman. It was a gray November morning. Rusty drove up to his son's preschool, exited his car, and was shot four times in broad daylight. Who killed Rusty, and why? We'll answer that question and find out what pushes an average person over the edge. Who really pulls the trigger? Tune in each week to Case Closed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can't wait to hear what really happened to Rusty Snyderman? Hear the full season right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash caseclosed and use code CLOSED to start your free trial. I'm Charlie Spicer. Thanks so much for listening.
2: Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to MindsofMadnessPodcast.com Podcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search the Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by the Funkors You can find them at the Record Labels website by going to Goldenerror .au slash G-E. I
0: can feel the madness Someone standing at my door
4: I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cuz I'm not prepared to run